Bibles to Lamentations chapter 2. Lamentations chapter 2. Title this evening is God's Anger at Sin. God's Anger at Sin. Chapter 2 of Lamentations, the general subject, uh, the, the, the general subject continues in chapter 2 that was in chapter 1, and that is it's a lamentation, which is an expression of grief. And Jeremiah is lamenting or mourning over the city of Jerusalem, upon which God brought his judgment. But it seems to go further. Chapter 2 seems to go further than just the lamentation to include the people of Israel in general and Judah in particular. That the God of Israel would ever allow the Gentiles and especially the Babylonians, to enter and destroy Jerusalem and the temple, man, that was something unthinkable to the Jewish people. By ignoring the covenant and depending on the presence of the temple and its sacred furnishings, especially the ark and their leaders, and most of the people had placed or replaced living by faith with dead superstition. But... This wasn't the first time that Jerusalem had been invaded. As a warning to his sinful people, the Lord had allowed other enemies to enter the city and to loot the city, like Egypt, Israel, the northern kingdom, the Philistines, and the Arabs. If Israel would have just listened to her prophets and returned to the Lord, she would have been spared the humiliation and the suffering of destruction and exile. The terrible experience of Jerusalem's suffering is now made known. The detailed story shows that Jeremiah was an eyewitness to the devastation that he describes. And the surprising thing about the story is that the Lord is seen as Judah's real enemy. And Jeremiah portrays what it means for someone to have God as their enemy. And it points out for us the New Testament statement. In Hebrews 10.31, that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And this is even more amazing when you think about God's continuing love for his people. But acknowledging that your punishment comes from God can be very valuable in its results. It just might be the beginning of repentance. Let's begin with verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2. And it begins, How the Lord has covered the daughter of Zion with a cloud in his anger. He cast down from heaven to the earth the beauty of Israel and did not remember his footstool in the day of his anger. The Lord has swallowed up and has not pitied all the dwelling places of Jacob. He has thrown down in his wrath the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He has brought them down to the ground and he has profaned the kingdom and princes. Like a cloud covering, the daughter of Zion, another name for Jerusalem, there's no sunshine. There's no hope there now. There's just darkness. Like, again, like a cloud covering. Like a resting place of God, Jerusalem is no longer the place, that, no longer that place, that resting place. But in the day of his anger, he has cast down the beauty of Israel. And the anger of the Lord is a very real and fearful thing. This is a strong expression of his displeasure with wickedness and sin. 
Yet God's anger never shuts us off from his compassion. The psalmist said, Asaph said, in Psalm 77, verse 9, he says, Have you, God, forgotten how to have pity? Do you refuse to show mercy because of your anger? And in Psalm 77, verses 7 through 9, Asaph asked God six questions that all dealt with the character and the attributes of God. First of all, he asked, God, have you rejected us? In verse 7. No, he hasn't. He is faithful to his word. Second question Asaph asked of God, will you ever again show favor to Israel? He said, the answer is yes. Third, has his unfailing love vanished forever? Has his mercy vanished forever? No. The fourth question he asked is, have your promises failed? Are you not going to keep your promises to us anymore? No. They haven't failed. The fifth question, you know, has he forgotten to be gracious? In verse 9, the answer is no. And the sixth question that Asaph asked is, 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 are you so angry that you have shut up your compassion to us? And the answer is no to that as well. It has well been said that we should never doubt in the darkness what God has told us in the light. That is when, you know, when God has spoken to us the promises and the encouraging things and, and, and the things that we can hold on to. When he's told us that in the light and when things are going well, he says when it gets dark and we're going through difficult times, never forget those things. In the dark times, in the tough times that he's told us in the light. But Asaph was about to do so. Always remember no matter what God is doing in your life, you know, through his providence, his heart has never changed. He still loves us and he always will. So in verses 1 and 2, in that day of his anger, there were a lot of, uh, of unusual things happening among his people. Notice it says, <clears throat> and then a, a, a cloud. It says a cloud you know, is a picture of his anger. It suggests calamity of gigantic proportions. Jeremiah says, God has cast down the beauty of Israel, which was found in its temple and in the Ark of the Covenant. He didn't remember his footstool, it says there. God's footstool is identified with the Ark of the Covenant. And sometimes God was pictured as being enthroned and seated on the mercy seat, which was on the Ark of the Covenant, between the cherubim, the two angels that were over the Ark. It says he has thrown down the strongholds, that is the walls of the city of of Jerusalem. He's thrown down the towers of Judah and he's profaned or dishonored the kingdom and its princes or its leaders. Verse 3, he goes on to say, He has cut off in fierce anger every horn of Israel. He has drawn back his right hand from before the enemy. He has blazed against Jacob like a flaming fire devouring all around. So Jeremiah says, the Lord has cut off Israel's power by lifting his right hand from their defense. In other words, God's lifted his hand from defending Israel. And the horn was a symbol of strength and power in the Bible. It says he has drawn back his right hand. And usually the right hand of God is understood as being the instrument of help for God's people. 
that was stretched out now against their enemies. That used to be stretched out against their enemies, but now it's been removed from the enemy. So the enemy's doing whatever you know, they, God has meant for them to do to Israel in judgment. But here God's hand is withdrawn from the enemies, again, leaving the people of God at their mercy. Verse 4. Standing like an enemy, he, this is speaking of God, standing like an enemy, he has bent his bow with his right hand like an adversary. He has slain all who are pleasing to his eye. On the tent of the daughter of Zion, he has poured out his fury like fire. So here's a picture of God standing like an enemy. God stood there with his right hand, all right, like an adversary. That is with his bow and arrows or with his sword drawn like an enemy. Now, the Targum, which is a paraphrase of the Hebrew, says it like this. He stood at the right hand of Nebuchadnezzar and helped him when he distressed his people Israel and slew all that were pleasing to the eye, princes and priests, husbands and wives, parents and children, young men and maids, desirable to their friends and relations and to the nation. In the tabernacle or the tent of the daughter of Zion, he poured out his fury like fire, that is either in the temple or in the city of Jerusalem or both which were burnt with fire as the effect of divine wrath and fury and which itself is comparable to fire like a burning lamp of fire or rather like a burning furnace or mountain. We read in Nahum 1.6, who can stand before his indignation, his anger, and who can endure the fierceness of his anger? His fury is poured out like fire. And Hebrews 12, 29 tells us, for our God is a consuming fire. So God here is chastening his people. God has judged his people after giving them chance after chance after chance to repent. He called on them over and over again, but they still continued in their evil, their rebellion and their sin until there was no more remedy for their sin. According to Second Chronicles, there was no remedy for their sin. There was nothing else left that he could do. And it's, you see, it's possible to wear out the grace of God. It's possible to go beyond the limits that God has set for us. In the days of Noah, God said to Noah in Genesis 6-3, My spirit shall not always strive with men. Now, it's not that God, God runs out of grace. There comes a time when we abuse the grace of God so much, there's a cutoff point. As he said here in Genesis 6, my spirit, he says, shall not always strive with men. The word, the key word is always. See, God's spirit does strive with us. You know, God is so long-suffering and he, 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 he calls upon us and he, he, he woos us and he loves us and he, he wants to bring us into that fellowship with him. So God's spirit does strive with us, and thank God that it does. Thank God that God strives with us, and God has been striving with many of you, you know, in, in bringing you to the kingdom. But don't take God's grace for granted. Don't think that, that you'll be able to come to God on your own terms and in your own time. There is a time that God gives, and there's a time where God pleads, but he's not going to plead forever he's not always going to strive there comes a day when a person can cross over the line where God stops pleading uh, for that person any longer then they face that in inescapable certain fearful expectation of judgment 
and fiery indignation of God's wrath, which will, de- will devour the enemies, the adversaries, Hebrews 10.27 says. You see, there is a line, but we don't know where that line is. There is a time, but we don't know when that time is. But that line and that time marks the destiny of men you know, to sorrow and to despair once we've crossed that line. There is a line, but man can't see it. But once it's crossed, even God in all of his love has sworn that there's no remedy, that it all is lost. You see, a lot of people play games with God. And they think they're getting away with their sin. But they're deceiving themselves. They're deceived and thinking, you know what, that it doesn't really matter. That God doesn't really care what I'm doing. Or that he doesn't see. Or that I'm fooling God. Just like I'm fooling everybody else. But the only one that you're really deceiving is yourself. The day will come. Even as it did with Judah. Where God will just cut you off. The day of his judgment where the Lord will become like an enemy to you. Verse 5. The Lord was like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all of her palaces. He has destroyed her strongholds and has increased mourning and lamentation in the daughter of Judah. Sheol or death is sometimes portrayed as swallowing up people. So God is described here as doing the swallowing. And those remaining, those who are still left, are sad and they're grieving. Verse 6 and 7. He has done violence to his tabernacle as if it were a garden. He has destroyed his place of assembly. The Lord has caused the appointed feasts and Sabbaths to be forgotten in Zion. In his burning indignation, he has spurned the king and the priest. The Lord has spurned his altar. He has abandoned his sanctuary. He has given up the walls of her palaces into the hand of the enemy. They have made a noise in the house of the Lord like it was a day of a set feast. The word tabernacle means booth or hut. It's a structure that was found in a garden. The point seems to be that the glorious temple of God had become similar to the rundown house of David. As mentioned in Amos chapter 9 verse 11. The temple of God had become a booth of branches. Like those used for the feast of booths or succoth. The altar, the sanctuary, the walls and the house mentioned in verse 7. Each of these words, each of these terms refers to the holy temple in verse 6. God has turned against the people because they had turned against him. The people, or I should say the prophet... Azariah said to King Asa in 2 Chronicles 15 2, The Lord is with you while you are with him. And if you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. And that's what's happened here. If you forsake God, he will forsake you. The, for, the Spirit of God came upon the prophet Azariah in 2 Chronicles. And he came upon Azariah to instruct him what he should say and to empower him to enable him to say it with clearness and boldness. He told Azariah clearly and plainly what, on what terms uh, the people were to stand with God. He says to, he's telling Azariah, don't let the people think that because they had gotten victory that everything was good forever. He said, no, he had to let them know they had to be on their best behavior. Obeying God, living for God. He said, if they did well, 
it would be well with them. Otherwise, it wouldn't go so well for them. The Lord is with you, Azariah as would say, as long as you are with him. This is both a word of comfort that says those who keep close to God shall always have his pleasure, his presence with him. And it's also a word of warning that he is with you while you are with him. But no longer than that. But his continued presence, hey, it depends on your continuance in maintaining your covenant relationship with him. If you seek him, he'll be found by you. Sincerely desire his favor. Make that your goal and you will obtain it. Pray and you will be victorious. God never said nor ever will. Seek me in vain. Hebrews eleven six 6 says he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. But if you forsake him and his laws, he's not bound to you. And he will surely forsake you. And then you're done for. Your present victories. Those victories that you've had in the past, those won't keep you safe. They're no guarantee that they'll keep you safe in the future. And woe to those when God departs. So God showed them the dangerous consequence of forsaking him and his laws. And that there was no way of having the sins that caused their miseries taken care of except by repenting and turning back to God. Verse 7. The Lord has spurned his, his altar, his, he's, has abandoned his sanctuary, has given up the walls of her palaces into the hand of the enemy. They have made a noise in the house of the Lord as on the day of a set feast. Now, as their enemies were destroying the temple, they were shouting. They were just having a great time as they were destroying the temple of God's people. It's, it's as if there was a feast going on and when, when the people of God were praising the Lord and lifting their voices to the Lord in praise. But now these shouts are not praise, uh, uh, the praise to God by the enemy or by God's people, but they're shouts of, uh, of, of praise by the enemy. And it's, you know, as they're destroying the sanctuary of God. Verse 8. The Lord has purposed to destroy the wall of the daughter of Zion. He has stretched out a line. He has not withdrawn his hand from destroying. Therefore, he has caused the rampart and wall to lament. They languished together. Four weeks after Jerusalem was captured, King Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed the temple, the palace, and the homes of the people and the city wall. Verse 9, her gates have sunk into the ground. He has destroyed and broken her bars. Her king and her princes are among the nations. The law is no more, and her prophets find no vision from the Lord. When it says here the law is no more, it doesn't mean or it doesn't suggest that it's the end of the law, but rather that it's the ceasing of the work of the law, of God's word in the lives of the people for their blessings from God. God is silent. He's left and the place is desolate. God has departed. God has forsaken them. And he says here, Jeremiah says, her prophets find no vision. In other words, divinely appointed instruction stopped for both the nation and the people. Again, this is not to say that the law or prophecy were no longer available. God spoke to Jeremiah 10 days after the prophet requested a word from God. And Ezekiel and Daniel prophesied during the 70 years of the exile. So again, it doesn't mean that the law and the prophecies were, uh, were not uh, any longer available. Verse 10. 
The elders of the daughter of Zion sit on the ground and keep silence. The, um, the elders of the daughter of Zion sit on the ground and keep silence. They throw dust on their heads and gird themselves with sackcloth. The virgins of Jerusalem bow their heads to the ground. Those few weak people that were left, they're seen here sitting in the dirt. And they're throwing dust and dirt on their heads as they sit in sackcloth. Throwing dust on the head was a common sign of mourning in Israel and also in other countries of the, old, of the ancient world. The virgins of Jerusalem here, sadness was increased knowing that this wasn't a time for getting married and raising a family. And even though these young girls, you know, even though their lives had been spared, they had lost their futures. And instead of these young virgins, the, these young girls going around with a smile and bright, shiny faces, their heads were down because they had no hope. Verse 11. My eyes, he says, notice, they, uh, Jeremiah says, my eyes fail with tears. My heart is troubled. My bile is poured out on the ground because of the destruction of the daughter of my people, because the children and the infants faint in the streets of the city. Jeremiah says, my eyes fail with tears. This is Jeremiah's response, who suffered with those who are being judged. The word liver, bile there is literally liver, which was a symbol of deep emotion. The little children are going around passing out because of hunger. They were starving. Jeremiah sits there and he sees all of this going on and it's breaking his heart. He's crying over what's taking place and he can't do anything. There's nothing he can do. God has called this judgment upon the people. So Jeremiah just weeps over what he sees and the misery that he sees there among the people. Verse 12. He says, they say, speaking of the children, they say to their mothers, where is grain and wine? As they swoon or faint like the wounded in the streets of the city as their life is poured out in their mother's bosom. The kids are dying. The words grain and wine are used here as a synonym for food. Can you imagine what it would be like to not have any food? Their children come and say, Mommy, I'm hungry. I want something to eat. But then they don't have anything to give them because everything has been used up. They looked for some nourishment. The children looked for some nourishment. It says from their mother's breasts. And they died right there in their mother's arms died of hunger and starvation trying to nurse from their mother but nothing's there verse 13 how shall i console you jeremiah says to what shall i liken you O daughter of jerusalem what shall i compare with you that i may comfort you O virgin daughter of zion for your ruin is spread wide as the sea who can heal you jeremiah says how can, I, I don't know what i can do to console, console you to comfort you what can I say to comfort you? What can I compare you to? What can I say? Jeremiah didn't have any words to help comfort the grieving women of Jerusalem as they looked, you know, at their dying children. They were helpless to do anything. Jeremiah says, it's because your wound is as deep as the sea. Your ruin is as measureless as the sea. You've been hurt so much. That is, judgment has been, is so, has been so much, it's too much for anybody to heal. Verse 14. Your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. And here's the cause. 
Your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. They have not uncovered your iniquity to bring back your captives, but have envisioned for you, notice, false prophecies and delusions. The false prophets, Jeremiah says, they spewed out false and deceptive visions to you. Things that were totally worthless. They lied to you. The prophets were telling God's people, these false prophets were telling God's people, hey, the Babylonians, they'll never build a fort against this city. We're safe from the Babylonians. They'll never shoot an arrow into this city. It's like when the devil tells us, oh, you're okay. You, you don't have to repent. You know, your life, you don't have to turn from your sins. The false prophets were assuring the people that they would continue living the good life. The false prophets were basically saying, hey, don't stop living it up. Don't stop the celebration. Things are going to get better. The false prophets were encouraging the people and they were making fun of Jeremiah in the process because Jeremiah was predicting doom and gloom. Jeremiah was predicting, predicting God said, hey, look, Babylon is coming. The invasion is coming and they're going to conquer your city. But they believe the false prophets. Just like when you talk about the rapture of the church and the, the, the tribu great tribulation people, the tri uh, great tribulation people laugh. You gotta be kidding. You believe all that? It's gonna happen one day. So the false prophets prophesied lies to the people. And he says, they said, they didn't talk about your iniquity, they didn't bring that up. They didn't talk about your sins. They didn't try to make things better by pointing out your sins that might cause you to repent. They just told the people, everything's going to be okay. Verse 15. All who pass by clap their hands at you. They hiss and shake their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem. Is this the city that is called the perfection of beauty, the joy of the whole earth? The enemies looked at Jerusalem's destruction and they just mocked Jerusalem. They mocked, they hissed. Verse 15 says they shook their heads and clapped their hands with joy at seeing the destruction of the holy city. To shake their heads was a common expression of mockery and losing faith in the ancient Middle East. That was a terrible thing. It was a terrible evil. And in the Psalms, Jerusalem is known as the joy of the whole earth, the source of spiritual blessings for all the nations of the earth. Now, Jerusalem was destroyed. It was defiled and it was unclean. Verse 16. All your enemies have opened their mouth against you. They hiss and gnash their teeth. They say, we have swallowed her up. And surely this is the day that we have waited for. We have found it. We have seen it. They were so, the enemy was so happy. The victorious enemy is, is mocking God's defeated people. The once majestic and secure city of Jerusalem was now the object of just people scoffing at them and ridiculing them. People, people the enemy was, was insulting Jerusalem, poking fun at her, uh, at her former beauty. Oh, this used to be such a beautiful city. Look at it now. Used to be filled with beauty and joy. Look at it now, it's gone. So they, the enemies of Israel, they scornfully rejoiced in their victory against Israel. Verse 17. The Lord has done, notice, the Lord has done what he has promised. 
He has fulfilled His word which He commanded in days of old. He has thrown down and has not pitied. And He has caused an enemy to rejoice over you. He has exalted the horn of your adversaries. Notice all through this, it's God who has been doing all of this. The Lord, it says in verse 17, Jeremiah says, The Lord has done exactly what He warned you He was going to do. You see the importance of believing the Word of God? God's Word is going to be fulfilled, every word. Nothing will be left undone. God fulfilled the promises of disaster that He made a long time ago. God promised Moses that He was going to judge sin. And the destruction of Jerusalem was a fulfillment of that promise. The prophecies of Isaiah and Jeremiah and those of other prophets that were warning the people, like Habakkuk, they've all come to pass. God has done just what he said he would do. He destroyed, it says, without pity. He made, God made their enemies happy because of what happened to them. He made your enemies strong. Verse 18. Their heart cried out to the Lord. O wall of the daughter of Zion, let tears run down like river, like a river day and night. Give yourself no relief. Give your eyes no rest. The hearts of the people in Jerusalem were crying out to the Lord. Then to the congregation, Jeremiah cried. And he was addressing the wall of the daughter of Jerusalem. He said, let tears run down like a river day and night. Give yourself no relief. Give your eyes no rest. In other words, he was telling the people, don't let your eyes stop shedding tears. Don't quit praying. And just let the tears roll down your cheeks. Verse 19. Arise, cry out in the night at the beginning of the watches. Pour out your heart like water before the face of the Lord. Lift your hands toward him for the life of your young children who faint from hunger at the head of every street. The word arise is the call for the people to wake up and to cry out for God's mercy. To lift your hands refers to a posture of prayer. Now in the Hebrew, they had three watches of four hours each during the night. The beginning watch that's mentioned here in verse 19, the beginning watch was from 8, to mid, 8, uh, 8 p.m. to midnight. The middle watch was from midnight to 4 a.m. And the morning watch was from 4 a.m. to 8 a.m. in the morning. Jeremiah said, pour out your heart before the Lord. Lift up your hands in prayer to the Lord. He says to Jer- Jeremiah, says, ask him. Ask him to let your starving children live. They're fainting with hunger in all the streets of the city. Pray for your children. And that's still something that's for us to do today. Pray for the conditions that our children are experiencing. As Jeremiah said, pray for your children for what they're experiencing. Hold them up in prayer today. And boy, how we need to pray for our children and all children today. Due to the things they're facing today. Things like never before. They're faced today with all kinds of evil and all kinds of temptations and all kinds of garbage. You know, this, this transgenderism and sex and racism and pornography and drag shows and sexual abuse confusing their minds. All with the approval of governments and much of society today. It seems like our government doesn't seem to be protecting our children anymore. From filthiness and filthy influences. 
And children are now being you know, exposed to all of this perversion starting at such early ages because it's so widespread. Then we made no attempts any longer to protect the children from the violence and the unhealthy effects of pornography and all of these things, from all these kinds of evil. So the children become victims. The prophet is saying here, pour out your heart like water before the face of the Lord. Lift your hands toward him for the life of your young children. You know, who should be learning the, the, the reading, writing, and arithmetic in school. You know, they've cut out things like art and music. And they've replaced it with this transgenderism. This so-called alternate lifestyle, which is not a lifestyle, it's a death style. And they're pushing it. And they're pushing it. You know, they can do what they want, but you know, don't push it down our throats. Don't force our children to, to be taught things they don't even understand yet. So it's a call to pray, to lift our hands towards them for the life of our children. Verse 20 and 21. See, O Lord, and consider to whom have you done this? Should the women eat their offspring, the children they have cuddled? Should the priest and prophet be slain in the sanctuary of the Lord? Young and old lie on the ground in the streets. My virgins and my young men have fallen by the sword. You have slain them in the day of your anger. You have slaughtered and not pitied. Jeremiah says, Lord, think about this. Should you treat your own people this way? Think about you. I'm sorry, think about, about who you've brought these calamities of, of famine and sword to, Lord. You haven't done this to your enemies, but to your own people that are called by your name and, and they're your children. These children who had not sinned like their fathers had done. And now God's people aren't, you know, when you hear this, God isn't, God's people aren't charging him with any unfairness. They're not complaining about the harsh treatment that they're receiving. They only humbly pray. God, just look at the misery that we're going through. Look at us with an eye of pity and compassion. And think about our, our sorrowful condition and remember the relationship that we have with you. So what they're doing, they're submitting their case to the Lord and they're leaving it in his hands. Because that's all they can do. Jeremiah seems to be saying that this is what God's people are saying here in praying for the life of their young children. The slaughter went beyond the children to cover the religious leaders and people of all ages. Priest and, priest and prophet alike were killed inside the temple walls as the Babylonian army rushed in for the victory. As Jeremiah made his way through the winding streets of Jerusalem, he was seeing swollen corpses scattered among the rubble. He saw young and old lying dead together in the dust of the streets. When Babylon finally did break through Jerusalem's defenses, its soldiers were so angry because Jerusalem had held them off for 30 months. The Babylonians didn't care what the age of the people were. He didn't care what, they didn't care whether they were male or female. The bloodthirsty Babylonians, they just butchered countless thousands. Verse 22. 
You have invited as to a feast day the terrors that surround me. In the day of the Lord's anger, there was no refuge, uh, no refugee or survivor. And those whom I have borne and brought up, my enemies have destroyed. Just in case anyone forgot that God was the ultimate judge, Jeremiah reminded the people here that God was the one wielding the sword of judgment. The Babylonians triumphed. But it was only because God allowed them to triumph. God had warned Israel what he would do if she continued to disobey him. And he faithfully carried out his threat. Those that he had loved were now destroyed. This is the terrible and fearful consequence of turning back, turning your back against God and the things of God. The day of God's judgment is coming again. It's coming again. If God judges his own people for their wickedness, no one, will, no one else will be spared. And just as sure as God's judgment fell upon them for their sins, for their transgressions and their iniquities, so will God's judgment fall on us for our transgressions and our iniquities. So in closing, the time is now for the church who is called by his name, as Second Chronicles says, to humble themselves and pray and seek his face and turn from their wicked ways to weep before the Lord, to pray for our nation, to pray for our children, to pray for our future. We've already seen the signs of corruption. We've seen its consequence and destruction. We've seen the mobs in our streets as they rebel against law and authority and righteousness. We see the random and senseless killing of innocent people. The shootings in the schools and in public places. We see the evil that has a hold on our nation because it's turned its back against, uh, upon God. The nation has stretched out its arms to the gods of pleasure, the gods of power and intellect, of lust and riches. And people have worshipped and are worshipping the false gods today. They've rejected and treated the true and living God with disdain and hatred. That's why we need the Lord to stir our hearts like never before to remain unspotted from the world, undefiled from this world and the things of this world so that we might serve him with our whole hearts, fervently seeking after him, that we might be counted worthy to escape the things that will be coming to pass soon upon the earth and to become very serious in seeking God with all of our hearts, serving him with all of our strength in the name of Jesus. And as we see the spirit of lawlessness increasing and seems to be, emphasis on seems, seems to be overcoming our world. Remember and be encouraged with the words that greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And if God is for us, who can be against us? So let's get out in the name of the Lord Jesus and in the power of his might, as Paul said, standing strong against the wiles of the devil. And may our life be a light shining in the darkness, drawing men to Jesus and to a total commitment to him. And may our life be a real witness for Jesus Christ. And may he give us those opportunities to share our love for him with somebody in Jesus' name. Father, we come before you. Father, we thank you for such a clear chapter, Father, of all that you did. All that you allowed, God, because of your people's rebellion against sin, against you, Lord.
and you warned them. And, and as we read this, I believe that we can, we can look at, at God many times and say, man, he's so vindictive. He, he's such a dictator. He's such a tyrant. And a lot of people do when they hear what, was, what he did. But we need to understand it's the consequence of their rebellion against God. He warned them. Cause and effect. He warned them. If you walk with me, if you hold true to my word and my principles, you're going to be okay. But there's a warning that don't go beyond the boundaries I've set because the natural consequences will result. So again, it's not that he just became a tyrant or is a tyrant. He's warned us first. And it's just the natural consequences of rebellion. So Father, help us to look to you, God, for all things. And to recognize our iniquities and our transgressions, God. And to seek forgiveness. And the anointing and the power of the Holy Spirit <clears throat> to walk with you. <clears throat> all the days of our life, God. We thank you, Lord, for your wonderful word and for your love and your compassion. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.